Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with our great host, Steve Krupa. Hello, Steve. Hey, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Fantastic. So uh, we've got a, an interesting tale today. Uh, David Weingard, who is yeah. the founder and CEO of a company called Fit for D, uh, has a very personal connection to his, his company's mission uh, in, in helping people with, with diabetes. Uh, tell us a bit about David. Well, yeah, I mean, he's got a great story from, you know, if you wanted somebody doing something for a living that's impactful to their lives. I mean, he's a late, late in life diagnosed type one diabetic. And we'll, we talk about sort of the differences and the rarity of type one versus type two diabetes. But um, really, uh, obviously, his, his life changed significantly. He was a healthy marathon Ironman kind of guy. And then all of a sudden, finds out he's got diabetes. And it motivated him to uh, found a company that is uh, that is working on sort of a higher touch model. So we talk a lot about digital health, right? And he is uh, using digital tools, but um, but his company is really designed on trying to coach people with diabetes to take better care of themselves. And I think it's a it's a challenge for everyone that has it. It's a challenge for people that don't have it and may get it. Uh, and he's got an you know an interesting life story that leads him to uh, to have sort of a clear clear head about it all very interesting discussion yeah and it, it is one of those diseases one of many that i think really would benefits from texting from constant email communication from constant contact because you can things can slide pretty easily if you if you let things uh if you let them and the 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 outcomes are, are obviously dire if, if you do let it go yeah and type one is particularly difficult because it is very uh you know very you are going to be on insulin Type two is in some cases reversible, and certainly you can manage it better through lifestyle changes. But you know, those lifestyle changes are asking people to not do the things that they've gone through life either enjoying doing or gotten in the habit of doing. So um, it's 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 hard to maintain that discipline. You know, here's a guy who is still you know a, a big fitness um, advocate, and uh, even even despite the fact that he was diagnosed with disease, it sounded like if I'm remembering right, like 20 years ago. So, um, I like the company. It's, it was a very interesting story. We tried to spend a lot more time than usual talking about diabetes. It's a unique conversation, uh, in terms of this group of podcasts that we put together. We really dig into the actual disease and what it's like to live with it. It's a very interesting discussion. Definitely. And, uh, and you're right. The way he's able to manage his disease and still uh, perform at this, at this high level is remarkable. So let's get into this conversation with David Weingard from fit for D. <laughs> Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with David Weingart from Fit4D. Uh, welcome to the podcast, David. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. It's great. Yeah, so I, we're we're uh, we're going to get into a discussion about diabetes. I, I know you're doing some really uh, great work in that area, um, but I'd really I, I think you've got a pretty interesting personal story. So if you wouldn't mind starting with um, just a little bit of your background, but but most importantly, what was the inspiration? Uh, for starting fit for day sure so uh, I was diagnosed with type 1 at the age of 36 and uh, it was really a shock for me I have no diabetes in my family 
um, at the time I was a marathoner and Ironman triathlete, so I was in really good shape and um, went through that period and was very um, fortunate to meet a great diabetes educator, a clinician who had advanced training in diabetes, who gave me the support that I needed, gave me the education that I needed to uh, become productive in my personal and professional life. And that experience stayed with me. Um, I started giving back to the uh, diabetes community, um, speaking uh, with parents around the country on behalf of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And along that journey, realized it was a great opportunity to use technology to scale the experience that I had with the diabetes educator um, and reach the 30 million pe people in need. So at the time, I was one of 60 business folks at Microsoft, and I left Microsoft to found the company because helping people with diabetes is really my passion. Cool. So let me ask you this. I mean, the, the there's a lot of discussion about type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, to find out that you um, had that at age 36 is very unusual, right? I mean, normally that's diagnosed when you're... Uh, you're young, right? And certainly before, while you're in your teens, often often very close to birth. Did, did you just give us an understanding about uh, the rarity of that and, and uh, how you came about to know that you needed to be checked? Right. So just uh, as, as way of baseline, of the 30 million people with diabetes in the country, uh, roughly 28 million of them have type 2 and about 2 million have type 1. And, and type 2 means that the, the insulin in the body doesn't regulate well and you sometimes need medications. Sometimes you could deal with it with exercise and diet. In the case of people with type 1 diabetes, it's almost like a, a, a cousin disease. It's not exactly the same thing. It's, it's basically the body doesn't create insulin anymore. And so the only way to live is to either inject insulin through uh, a needle um, or to use an insulin pump. And most people that get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and the reason it's called juvenile diabetes is because, like you said, it's diagnosed younger, either as a child or a teenager. Um, there is a slice of the population, about 10-15% of the type 1 that get diagnosed later in life. We don't know why. That's one of the mysteries of science. Of science. Um, I, you know, for me, I was training pretty heavily for a survival race that summer. Uh, I was, one Sunday, I was training five hours. That same, by Thursday that week, I couldn't walk the three blocks to my doctor's office. Um, I had lost over 30 pounds. Um, and what I still find astounding to this day is I didn't know that I lost 30 pounds because the sugar load affects the brain. So here I was wor working, taking care of my family. Everybody said I look thin, but, you know, I'm training hard. And I just thought, well, that's what comes with training hard. But actually, as I put on a pair of shorts to go to that doctor, they were huge. I had no idea why until they went, till I went there and they put me on the scale. And they told me that I had type one diabetes. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. And um, well, obviously you've you have uh, have learned to live with it. I know there's stories of people that 
have learned to live with the disease. Did they think that you had actually had it for a much longer period of time, or was it just a moment in time when the body just stopped producing insulin and and then just led you to lose that amount of weight? I mean, was this something that they could have found, say, a year or two prior? Um, not really. Uh, with type 2, it's a progressive disease, mm-hmm. so that there are signs. People come back with their lab test and blood sugar is high, and usually the doctors recommend some exercise and diet changes and over time, maybe they'll need medication. So that, that's something that has a longer lead time with type one. It kind of, uh, strikes hard early. Um, I would say from the time that I experienced the symptoms, uh, to the time I was diagnosed was about three weeks where things were happening. My body had no understanding why. Um, and it was really the loss of energy that, where my blood sugars were just out of control. I had no idea because uh, my body had just basically shut down creating insulin. So fortunately, there is uh, insulin uh, being made, and it's great. And it took a few weeks and took the guidance of that educator to help me. Um, and that fall, three months later, I actually ran one of my fastest marathons uh, with diabetes. So um, it can be done. Wow. I uh, just need to be diligent about how to do it, um, but you can live a productive life with diabetes. So I had a, uh, a couple of friends uh, in my life that have had type one diabetes, and uh, but I don't really keep keep track with how people are treating themselves. You know, today I know back back then they were using you know blood to test their their blood, and they would inject insulin and they would regulate their sugar intake what's what is it what is the maintenance as a type 1 diabetic compared to a type 2 diabetic in terms of your lifestyle and how you have to lead it yeah so a a type 1 basically because we don't produce insulin we need to either take injections or uh, use an insulin pump and either way you, you really you're really managing to make sure you don't go, your blood sugar doesn't go too low where you could pass out or go too high, which is not good for um, your health and long-term complications, but also, you know, there's lack of clarity because um, it, it kind of feel, you kind of feel out of balance. So you're trying to, trying to manually manage the amount of insulin in your body where someone without type without any, without diabetes is, has this all happening automatically. And so it's really, it's really a process where you do the best you can. You count carbohydrates in meals, you estimate the amount of insulin you, you need. Um, you try to avoid those lows, try to avoid those highs and you constantly correcting. And it, it really is a, a life that leads to a lot of structure and organization because you, if you don't do that, you really don't feel well. Uh, and you know, you don't, you're not healthy with type two diabetes, uh, even for the patients that are on medication for the most part, it's not as extreme because they are producing some insulin in their body. Um, and so it's, it's a muted version of it. Uh, Mm -hmm. the dangers of low and high are not as, except in a small percent, they're not, that's not as much the issue. It's, it's basically getting you know, getting the body to a healthier state and not 
leading to the long-term complications of diabetes. I mean, diabetes is serious. The yeah. One of the leading cause of death in the country is really from heart disease, and the driver behind that a lot of times is diabetes. Uh, a lot of families who have poorly controlled diabetics in their family have, you know, have had amputations or, you know, eyesight loss and other things that are caused by not maintaining diabetes uh, properly. So, you know, getting a diabetes educator into the life of those who um, who's, who are, ha- are struggling with it and dealing with it 24 by 7, of course, uh, is critical. So uh, just last question on this, which is just more of a curiosity. I mean, are you in, using injectables? Or are you using an, an in, are you inhaling? How, how, what's the most common form of taking the insulin in these days? Yeah, so when I was diagnosed probably for the first six months, I was on uh, injections, which actually was really good, like training wheels to learn how to manage the disease. And then I've been on an insulin pump ever since, wow. uh, which I find that uh, is really helpful to me. And I prefer to take, you know, be pressing buttons to inject insulin rather than taking injections all day long. Right. Um, so it's been very helpful to me. This In the last, you know, 16 or so years since I've been diagnosed, a lot of good technology has come out too. There are things called continuous glucose monitors, which... Uh, give you trending information, how your blood sugar is doing, and it's attached to a sensor you wear on your body. Uh, so in a way, um, having good blood glucose control and avoiding those complications has gotten easier. Um, if people use the technology, which is the key, which is a key caveat, because at the end of the day, a lot of people are in denial about their diabetes or uh, they have fear of these um, you know, just injecting themselves or they don't have access to the resources. So, you know, there are there are a lot more resources available to patients nowadays, but there's still the core barriers to taking care of their health uh, still exist. And, yeah, so I was trying to imagine um, how you do a marathon, but I guess yet you would have the insulin pump, and that's that's how you're able to manage your insulin levels over that long of an extended yeah. period of exercise, right? Yeah, I mean, I've done four Ironman triathlons, three of them with type 1 diabetes. And yesterday, as a matter of fact, I just did a half Ironman up in Connecticut. Uh, it was a ridiculous course, where so it took me seven hours. But it's, it's basically um, balancing blood sugar the whole time if you eat, the blood sugar goes up. As you exercise, blood sugar goes down. And um, so it, it's you really have to monitor it because you never want to go low while you're, you could pass out while you're on the bike. Or, um, But what I've found is that I keep a lot of records of how, what I eat, and I simulate all the races. So, And I get smarter every time I race. And... I have a routine now that works. Um, I'm able to do the race I did yesterday. My blood sugar actually stayed really, really tight. Um, it was actually really, really great. Um, and that that really was the result of a lot of work over the last 16 years and trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really made the it made me race just as close to a non-diabetic as I could. Wow. You know, um, you hear these, you see any of these stories where people are sort of presented with medical challenges and it's always, um, 
it's a very heartening to see you know someone like yourself who's taken sort of type one diabetes and figured out how to uh, how to basically continue with the things that you were into before you were diagnosed uh, going forward. I mean, obviously, it's good for your health to be physically fit, but it sounds like you know this is one of your passions in life, one of the things you loved to do, and you've you've sort of triumphed in in being able to do that. Um, but we 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 know that there are uh, there are there are a lot of people that are diagnosed with this and other diseases that. That, that, that struggle to get to that point where they're taking care of the disease in, an, in such an effective way um, that they're able to, to sort of live the life that they want to live. Um, given that I know this is your passion, I know you've built a company around it, can you give us a sense for um, the difficulty that people have with the disease in terms of complying with a regimen of treatment and um, disciplining themselves to sort of create a life for themselves that isn't necessarily uh, as different other than the compliance piece than, than it was before they, they ran into difficulty. Do you follow my question? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a little different with type 1 versus type 2. So for type 1, when they're diagnosed by a doctor, you, you basically have to get on an insulin routine or you're going to die. It's that simple. Right. Um, your body can't function. So whether they do it well or they do it not so well, there, there is. They have to do it well enough to live, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So th- there's work that we do with type ones that helps them get to the next level, but it's at a different level of conversation with type two diabetes, which again accounts for eighty percent of the thirty, you know, thirty million people. Um, the people will will have an experience where they'll be in the doctor's office and they'll be told that they have diabetes. And they only have, on average, seven to ten minutes with their doctor. So that's like a big thing to be told. And yeah. there's a lot of, uh, there's, a, there's a lack of education about what diabetes is, what it means, the work that needs to be done. Uh, one of our first clients was Bayer Diabetes way back when we founded the company. And they their whole business was around a meter and getting people to test their blood sugar using strips. And it was incredible to see how, you know, as we engage with their, with their patients, what the level of testing was. I mean, a, a minimum someone with type two diabetes should be testing days once in the morning and once at night. And these people were testing like, you know, the average was like 0.04 or something like that. And most people didn't even know why they were testing or what, an A1C is, an A1C is an average blood glucose measure and an indicator whether you're going to have complications. And so, you know, it's critical to find a way to educate the people of what diabetes means. The the providers don't have time. The patients leave the doctor's office. They may or may not come back in the next year. Um, They write a script. They, 40% of the patients who are given that script, don't initiate or fill the first script or drop off in the first six months. It's it's really unbelievable. And so that's really, it's a huge economic, that's, that's the, a key lever in why diabetes is so costly to the system and why, uh, why people need help. Okay, we're going to take a quick break from this conversation to remind you that the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit is happening on November 30th in Boston. 
Go to healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com to register. We're working on the agenda as I speak, and uh, it's going to uh, be a terrific show. The last two have sold out, so please don't wait. Again, go to healthag.com to register for the November 30th Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. And now let's get back to this conversation. You've, you, um, you've taken this um, and you've made a company out of it. T- tell me about your company. Tell me why it's important to you and, uh, and what your, your strategic and long-term objectives are with the business. Absolutely. So as I was just sharing, the, the, uh, that 40% of the patients who don't initiate or stay on their medication is costing the pharmaceutical companies billions of dollars a year. And um, one of the markets of distribution for FitFD is through pharmaceutical companies where we're usually white-labeled to engage patients and help them through the barriers you know, of denial of how do I take this medication, I'm afraid of injecting it, or I can't afford it, let me uh, tap into some of the programs the pharmaceutical company has. And so we're providing return on investment to the pharmaceutical company, we're providing a brand experience that strengthens the loyalty the patient has to the brand. And we're also creating value for them with providers because the providers know if they prescribe this brand, there'll be some education uh, for the patient that helps their work and gets their patient adherent. The the second distribution channel for Fit4D that, frankly, we uh, entered into about four years ago after we won a New York City Innovation Award is taking that adherence and solving for um, health outcomes for diabetes within the payer and provider community. So the the pilot that was sponsored by New York City was with Health First, and there they gave us patients who were very poorly controlled in their diabetes. Their blood sugars were out of control, which means high likelihood of complications like hospitalization and ER visits and other things. And we were able to get them uh, to be self-managed, to take their medications, to eat healthier, to take care of themselves, and get this A1C down. And so Health First became a client. Uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska became both a client and an investor. And uh, a few weeks ago, we announced their partnership with Humana. Um, and there are others, uh, other hospitals and large provider groups for our clients so the difference is with pharmaceutical companies, it's it's about getting them on the medication and brand experience. With the uh, payers providers, they're all measured on quality measures around getting this A1C down. So it's a much more holistic and richer program that not only is around the medication, but is also around lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, as a fellow New Yorker, um, I know Health First, and um, and they're they're largely a Medicaid. Uh, um, managed care plan, and I would imagine that if <laughs> if we were to like go out there and say what would be the hardest population to uh, get to self manage, it might be it might be Medicaid. Is um, so. What were th- some of the unique things that you were able to do for them uh, in terms of finding? First of all, finding these people can't be easy, and then starting to get them to um, to change their behavior because that's really what you're trying to do, right? You're trying to uh, institute behavioral change uh, across a cohort of people, right? Absolutely. And so we, we, one of the things we learned is we have to meet the patients where they are. 
and and especially in you know, 2017, we have to create a, uh, an experience that you know uses technology and has a level of personalization that people expect um, that's different than a call center. So we brought on great diabetes educators. They're not just calling people, reading scripts. They're following uh, logic and, and routine that we've developed and tested in the real world over the last nine years. And one of the and one of the key things that they do when they engage patients is they're the ones making the phone calls. They're the ones building a trusted relationship with the patient. They're saying, "I'm here for you for the next three months on behalf of Health First or whichever client. I'm gonna, I I got your back." And you know, for someone with diabetes, they're you know they're often scared. They don't know what's going on. They're hearing advice from neighbors or hearing different pieces. But to have someone who's a diabetes expert clinician available to them at no charge, you know, sponsored by the health plan or pharmaceutical company, is unbelievably valuable to them. Um, and to get that precise education and guidance and to, to motivate them to take care of themselves and get them back to the doctor. So what we do is we really believe in the human touch um, of getting this diabetes educator patient communication going and then using technology to scale that, uh, that relationship. That's cool. So the, 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 um, start we'll start for me with the, with the, with the personal touch. What do you, what do you think most people are struggling with when they, uh, when they are trying to manage their diabetes? Is it just, they, they, they want to ignore it. They want to pretend it's not there. Are they uh, really unfamiliar with, um, the potential, um, Side of well, side effects isn't really the right word, right? The, the, the potential health issues, that permanent health issues that can uh, that can advance if they don't take care of themselves. Where is the primary source of struggle? Well, it's yes to everything you said, um, and there's a lot of cultural aspects, and this ties back to your earlier uh, question about Medicare and Medicaid. The, um, for example, here in New York City. Um, 33% of African Americans have diabetes in New York City. 28% of the Hispanic population has diabetes. I mean, these are huge numbers compared to national uh, across all uh, cultures, you know, being 10%. So, you know, it's really out of control. It's a crisis. And some of the things uh, that we need to do is help educate these people, and we also need to speak in their language, not only Spanish for the Latino population, but, you know, down to a level where we're talking to the food groups that they, you know, if you're going to talk in New York City to a Dominican population, you need to, you can't talk about uh, tacos, like for, you know, Mexican population, just, you know, it's that level of sensitivity to the culture um, that makes all the difference for the patient. So we really pay a lot of attention to that. Um, we have a multilingual team. We make sure we understand the resources. You know, you can't, one of our, you know, clients, is, you know, in Nebraska, you know, we have to be sensitive to farming season, you know, and how to reach people during the time that they're working seven days a week, you know, 14 hours a day. We have to fit into their lives, you know, and so, Everything we're doing um, takes into account the cultural sensitivity, the resources available. If you're going to ask somebody in the South Bronx to go walk after dinner 
practices exercise, you really have to know what neighborhood they're in and whether that's a safe thing to guide them to. Mm-hmm. Or if there's a New York City, uh, you know, free resource that you could guide them to go there and do it. Or if they're on food stamps where to leverage uh, healthy foods. So that, that cultural sensitivity, socioeconomic sensitivity is vital in really making a difference in people self-managing mm-hmm. uh, their diabetes. It's interesting, I, I, you know, when you mentioned those those ratios and those percentages, um, we also know that in, in New York City that there are, there are abnormally higher percentages of people from those cultures that are on Medicaid than, than other cultures. And it sort of leads me to believe that, that it is a food issue, right? It could be the, the availability of food. It could be the fact that inexpensive food is less health-oriented, I guess. Um, and so what would be interesting to me, if you wouldn't mind, is just if you're, if you're dealing with the Medicaid-based population, a lot of them are living in poorer neighborhoods. When I go into those neighborhoods, I notice that a lot of the food that's available is fast food. It's not necessarily healthy food. I don't go into the grocery store to know what's available there, uh, generally speaking. But how are you able to create dietary shift if the availability of the right foods isn't there? Or is the food available? It's just that people don't know where to find it. Yeah, it's a combination of both. Um, and a lot of it is education. We'll, we'll get on the phone with a patient whose labs came back and their diabetes is way out of control. And we'll find out they're taking the meds, but the issue is they're drinking a gallon of juice a day, thinking that the juice is healthy. But uh, if you really drill down, the the juice is all sugar. And so that's what's really throwing their diabetes off. So it's helping educate them that what they thought was healthy uh, may or may not. Um, Certainly the access to fast foods uh, is attractive because it's also you know, very inexpensive compared to other uh, choices. And and that's where the creativity of the diabetes educators comes in because this is what they do. This is is the difference between having someone on the phone who is a call center agent looking at a script versus a registered dietitian who has two years of advanced training in diabetes and works with patients for a dozen years on average, which is what we have on our team, is they've seen it all. And they understand how to relate to people and how to motivate them and how to tap into the one thing that they may fear the most. You know, with the senior population, it may be that they want to be there for their grandchildren. And, you know, if they don't take care of themselves, they may not be there for their grandchildren. So what do we got to do to help them? Um, and some sometimes it's maybe involving the spouse on a call to help you know, with the, uh, with the cooking and, you know, planning or understanding why certain things are important because it usually does take a team to make it all work. Um, somebody's doing it alone, it's hard. But at the end of the day, this is a 24 by 7 disease, and it's very, very stressful uh, for people with diabetes. And I think at the core of it, besides the education, the one thing that we do that really makes a huge difference is support. Is, is letting people know that we're there for them and that they can ask us and we can help them and it's non-judgmental and we got their back. And you can't believe what a difference that does to people. That, that, that alone is a key lever in, in getting them to a healthier place. 
Very cool. Can you can you talk to me a little bit how you're using technology to scale this? You mentioned that earlier in the conversation. That sort of goes from the one-on-one relationship with a with a dietitian uh, to to using technology to try to scale that relationship. In what ways are you doing that? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we learned by through innovation with all the pharmaceutical and medical device companies in our early years is that you know the human touch, as we talked about, is critical to be creating behavior change. Uh, but there's a disparity in in how every diabetes educator communicates with a patient. If you took 10 of them, they'd all spend 10 different amounts of time and they do it 10 different ways. And so the opportunity to create scale is about making it more programmatic and focusing on the issues that are most important. So for example, when I mentioned earlier about the 40% of the patients who are not initiating or dropping off, we have, we have, clinical pathways that are all around that, um, that we train our diabetes educators on about how do we, how do we through phone, email, and text, help efficiently get people to understand the importance of taking their medication? How do we do that in a short amount of time with the most results? Um, and so that the clinicians are not you know, it, it's not, they're not incented to stay on for an hour. They're incented to get results and do that in a compassionate way to patients. So they have um, presented to them on the screen our clinical pathways and they're trained on it and how to solve for that or how to solve for denial. Um, any of the things we've talked about today, giving them the technology tools. The other part is making sure we're communicating with the patients in the way they like to communicate. So um, the personal touch is great through phone. Um, A lot of people, that'll be a good way to create trust. Uh, But afterwards, send emails with valuable links to videos or text message reminders for their medication or text message reminders for the calls. We also do online support groups where we do on video. We have like a thousand people on at the same time. And we'll do theme-based events like the getting through diabetes through the holidays. Um, And there's a lot of education we can do in creative ways using technology where we scale the diabetes educator to provide a lot of different type of education over using different formats. Awesome. Awesome. And do you, are you collecting data? Are you able to show your customers, you know, um, the effects of your program uh, on not only their population, but on the cost of those people's medical care? Because I'd imagine that's a big part of what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, Absolutely. So because we're a B2B business, our clients are the pharma uh, in one channel and the payer providers in the others. And so uh, pharma has already, not only do we have self-reported data, but they've, they've, tapped into third-party analytics companies, and they've measured over three-and-a-half times return for Fit4D with their patients, uh, solving for initiation, persistency of the medication. Uh, and then there's, there's the extra value of the brand loyalty and the aura around the drug with the providers. The uh, payers um, were able to use a lot of third-party data that measures the V, uh, the cost of having a high A1C. Millman has a great report out on that, and we show uh, 
the reduction A1C and it's delivered over five times return per year uh, to payers um, on keeping the cost low and people out of the hospital and out of the ER. And then on top of that, a lot of the, especially Medicare and Medicaid plans have quality measures that they're accountable to the government called STAR measures and where they actually have bonuses based on uh, getting their population to five stars. And most most plans are somewhere in the two to three star for their diabetes. Um, and even the best plans, they, they have, they always have at least 20% of their population that's just very, very poorly controlled. So we can work with any plan. And even if we say, let's just start with the 20% who are poorly controlled and show value there. Um, it's just, it's human nature. It's unfortunate, but because of how hard diabetes is and how much education is needed and all the stress and all the uh, barriers that we've talked about on this podcast, um, there's always a big percent of the population that needs help. Uh, the last statistic I'll throw out is that 18% of the diabetes population in this country account for 40% of the costs. So, you know, if you do the math, you know, that five uh, million people roughly um, account for 40% of the diabetes healthcare cost. And so solving for them first, uh, these are not the people downloading apps or technology that they probably, you know, in denial about their diabetes. Um, they need a human being. They need somebody that's going to build a relationship with them and get them to even realize they have it and to start their uh, the regimen the doctor recommended. And so there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of opportunity to create positive change. Well, David, thank you. Uh, we're coming up to the end of our time here. I really appreciate, I've learned a lot talking to you and I appreciate your time. Just as a close, um, can you give me a sense for where people can find out about you? I mean, I know you have a website, uh, but do you do any blogging? Any, do you have a Twitter handle or a uh, Facebook or any of that stuff? Where, where, where can uh, the listeners find out more about your company? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place and where we have uh, forms is uh, www.fit4d.com, which is our website, F-I-T, the number four, the letter D.com, uh, or email us at info at fit4d.com. We also do have a Twitter handle, which is at Fit4D, again, F-I-T, the number 4D. Um, and we do have both a LinkedIn group and a Facebook group uh, that you're welcome to join and, uh, you know, kind of pick up a lot of industry knowledge around diabetes and also uh, tips for helping with diabetes. Uh, you know, in closing, this is our mission. I mean, we're a growing, successful business, but at the end of the day, our core mission and mission and purpose is to improve the lives of people with diabetes everyone everywhere in the world. Uh, right now we're U.S. based, but that'll grow. Um, and this is why we exist. So if it can help anybody who's listening out there with diabetes, please reach out to us and let us uh, help you. Terrific, David. Thank you for joining me. I really enjoy talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thank you, Breaking Health Podcast listeners, for joining us on the Breaking Health Podcast. Thank you, David Weingard, for sharing fit for dees story and your own story as well. Uh, please do, do keep up the good work, and we look forward to tracking fit for dees progress going forward. 
Steve Krupa, another fantastic job. Thanks for leading this podcast series and for conducting a great interview with David Weingard. Finally, podcast listeners, do do us a few favors. Give us a ranking on iTunes. It does help. Helps people find the podcast. Don't forget to sign up for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. That is happening on November 30th in Boston. Uh, finally, tell your friends about the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. The more people listening, the better. And uh, feel free to email me, tom at healthogy.com. Let me know who we should be talking to, what we should be talking about. That's it. That's a wrap. Again, sign up for the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's happening on November 30th. We'll see you in Boston, my hometown.